Welcome to Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement-building show. This is your host, Eric Mann, in studio with co-host and producer Channing Martinez, with whom I work very closely on everything. Thanks to Ricky already for doing the work. And of course, always thank you to Nina Simone for getting us off to such an important start. Today I'm going to be doing reading of an article, and I'm sort of going to have a conversation with my own article, along with Channing. He and I have been uh, discussing, the the article is called All Hail the Revolutionary King, Dr. Martin Luther Jr., Martin Luther King Jr., and the Black Revolutionary Tradition. Now, the basic story is that I lived through the historical period of the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and hopefully for a long time. I knew King, as we all did, not personally. Uh, some were very lucky to know him personally. But we knew King. We were. I was with the Congress of Racial Equality. I know James Farmer, who was also one of the civil rights giants. Uh, I saw Stokely Carmichael. I, I knew Dave Dennis. We knew each other. We were all in the same circles together. Uh, we saw Dr. King and Malcolm X and Fannie Lou Hamer, I would say those three, as the three greatest, uh, both black revolutionaries and civil rights leaders. And we have, since the Strategy Center also operates the Strategy and Soul Movement Center at King and Crenshaw, there's an annual King Day parade, as we all know. There's now thanks to TV Wonder and the movement, uh, a national holiday. But in that holiday, Dr. King is gone. He's, he's barely there. And as all historical figures, you're assassinated in many different ways. Hmm. In, inside the United States, Dr. King has been assassinated uh, both by the system and then by the totally rewriting of his legacy, turning him into a very palatable character, which he was not. He was a very dangerous man, and he was very happy to be a dangerous man. So I'm going to start by reading some of my article and then commenting to you on it. But this one thing I want to start with is that besides having experienced history, I study history 
two, three, four hours a day. I read voraciously. I read, in the case of Dr. King, I've read uh, the 700-page David Garrow biography, uh, Bearing the Cross, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which is very important because, as he said, it's a study of an organization. It's not Dr. King, but it's uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which is absolutely right. I've read the three volumes of Taylor Branch's uh, um, biography of King, and it's called King uh, America in the King Years. So it sort of defines the entire period as defined by Dr. King. Uh, I've read Claiborne Carson's terrific book, uh, In Struggle, SNCC and the Rise of Black Power. So, and I'm going to refer to a lot of them. And then when I work on my own articles, and thank you to Wikipedia and thank you to uh, the web, I, I have a premise. I'll start out with Dr. King and communism, because I know that Dr. King was very pro-communist, which I'm going to talk about. And then when I go online, it'll say, you know, Dr. King was a communist in the, in the sense of said by the system against him. But then it'll also say Dr. King was very pro-communist by black scholars who were trying to assert that as a good thing, which I think is a good thing. So here's my point. I repeat it over and over. There's no such thing as history. There's only the battle and struggle over the historical record. I have a specific interpretation of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I, I did a long article in 2015, thanks to the editors of Counterpunch. It was I rewrote it this weekend, and it was published in Counterpunch. You can go on counterpunch.org, and it'll, it says, All Hail the Revolutionary King. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the Black Revolutionary Tradition. I want to thank uh, Dick and Sharon at the LA Progressive uh, for also running it on Monday. I want to thank Sam Anderson, who does a national black, it's called Black ED News, Black Educational News that you can use. Sam also wrote uh, Black Genocide for Beginners. Uh, terrific book. It's going to run this Thursday in the Black Commentator, and uh, it's also on our own mailing list at thestrategycenter.org. So with all those prefaces, the point is, is that the reason I'm fighting for the revolutionary record, the reason I wrote an article praising the Russian Revolution, the reason I spent three months fighting over the historical record of the Columbia University strike is because today's generation sees King and Malcolm at best as cardboard car cutouts and even worse as caricatures. I hope through reading some of this it'll give you not just my opinion but the complexity of what it takes to even understand somebody as important as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So with that preface, let me do a little reading. Uh, it says, the annual King Day celebrations provide a great opportunity to defend Dr. King's revolutionary legacy against the system's effort to whitewash and degrade his frontal challenge to their crimes. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was one of the great revolutionaries in U.S. and world history. 
He was a leader of the civil rights and black liberation movement, a fierce internationalist, anti-imperialist and pan-Africanist, a black militant, pro-communist socialist, and part of the movement that was far to the left of in opposition to the Democratic Party. So the first thing is to say is that do you really understand Dr. King as a pan-Africanist? I don't think so. Do you see him as a black nationalist, a black militant? I, I don't think you would or many would not. Did you understand that he was pro-communist? Uh, I'll make the case. And do you think those are good things? That's another thing. I do think all the things I've said about him, a leader of the civil rights and black liberation movement, a fierce internationalist, anti-imperialist and pan-Africanist, a black militant, pro-communist socialist, and part of the movement that was far to the left of in opposition to the Democratic Party, all of those things I consider great compliments and not necessarily things that many of you listeners would identify with Dr. King. Um, yeah, I think you said it best. And you know, one thing that stood out to me in that, there's a lot of things that stood out to me in that paragraph. And obviously you're making arguments in that frontal paragraph and being very clear that Dr. King is this, he is not the opposite, right? Um, but the main thing that stood out to me is the Democratic Party. And I think that stood out to me because, you know, in a lot of, in many public education schools and most, you know, just public education, people think about the civil rights movement as part of the Democratic Party. And what you're doing here is you're making it clear that it was not actually. Um, and, you know, that, for me, that's also a very big learning point because the Democratic Party sells itself as being part of the party that put on the civil rights department civil rights movement, which actually you guys did not. You were against all of the black liberation movement leaders, um, and no one wants to really talk about that. I'm glad you put that right in the front. Well, to clarify my own view, I do think there were people in the Democratic Party who were for the civil rights movement. I, we had a lot of allies in the Democratic Party at the time, good people, George McGovern as maybe one of the best, Bobby Kennedy at certain times. The difference was that King was to the left of an opposition to the Democratic Party, but we also worked with it. If that's complicated, it is. In other words, Lyndon Johnson was both an ally of the civil rights movement and an opponent of the civil rights movement in, in ways I could go into. But the point was that those of us in SNCC and CORE, when we met with the Democratic Party, we met with them from an independent political point of view. Right. We approached, We were not part of the Democratic Party. We could some, some people worked inside of it to try to change it, but we were building a third force, a third political force. Now, we then, there were some Republicans who helped us and some, some Democrats who helped us, but I think, let me see if I hold by my own statement, far to the left of and in opposition to the Democratic Party. So we were... Okay, cool. So thanks, Channing. The main point is I agree with you. I just wanted to clarify a little. So since 1980, with the rise of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, you need to know this. So, I mean, I could go over every sentence, but Margaret Thatcher was elected in 1979 in England. Uh, Reagan was elected in 1980 in the United States. This, to me, in my historical reading, is the turning point of the end of liberalism. Forget about revolution and the beginning of the deep counter-revolution. The two-party system, a.k.a. U.S. imperialism, 
has waged a counter-revolution against the great victories of the revolutionary 60s, in that the revolutionary left won so many of the ideological battles against U.S. hegemony, the system is understood that a counter-revolution must include a ferocious battle over the historical record. In the past 40 years, in particular, it has been profoundly painful to witness and very difficult to combat the lies and slanders against the historical and political achievements of the black and third world-led movements. This includes an epidemic of recantation literature written by depressed and disillusioned former radicals denigrating the great achievements of the U.S. Communist Party, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the Black Panther Party, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the Nation of Islam, the new communist groups such as the League of Revolutionary Struggle, and the great communist-led revolutions in the Soviet Union, China, Cuba, and Vietnam. So let me just give it, I will not repeat the slanders, but for instance, in the study of the U.S. Communist Party, so many young people today or others will say, yeah, but the problem was it was an agent, of, so I'm going to repeat some, it was an agent of the Soviet Union. No, it wasn't. It was allied with the Soviet Union. It was very dictatorial. Well, yeah, it was very disciplined is another word to stand up. The Student Nonviolent Commoting Committee, well, they had too many internal fights. Well, who didn't, including you guys today? The Black Panther Party was masculinist. Well, I don't know what that means. There were a lot of feminists inside the Black Panther Party. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference, you know, there were slanders of the pastors and Dr. King. The Nation of Islam, including, I think, a very one-sided discussion of, uh, of uh, Farrakhan, Louis Farrakhan, who, yes, made some very uh, bad anti-Semitic slogans and statements, but has also fought for black liberation as part of the black movement. The new communist groups, such as the League of Revolutionary Struggle, which now a lot of young people say, yeah, 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 but you were very sectarian. And the great communist-led revolutions in the Soviet Union, China, Cuba, and Vietnam. My question to you out there is this. Of all the groups that I read, how many of you do you have an enthusiastically positive view of before I say anything to defend them? I would argue that many of you have critical views of them. And for me, these were all amazing organizations that I feel very positive about. Of course, I could tell you weaknesses. But the point is that we're living in a period where if you go up, especially with young people I'm very concerned about, who are very militant and radical in some ways. But if you say, what do you think of the Black Panthers? What do you think of Dr. King? What do you think of Malcolm? They start up by repeating certain slanders, in my opinion, and you say, well, where did you get them from? And my answer is you got it from the system. Uh, it's also included character assassinations, arrests, and murders of those with the most vivid and irrepressible revolutionary memories. So you have uh, so many Black Panthers still in prison, so many Black Panthers still who have been killed, uh, so much repression against the revolutionaries that the people who best understand what's wrong with the system have been silenced in many different ways. As just one terrifying reflection of the impacts of this campaign, I've heard young black and Latino organizers with such militant intentions 
repeat without grasping the sources, quote, well, this is not your grandfather's civil rights movement, caricaturing the heroic and historic work of visionary leaders like Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So this is not just written for young people. This article is also written to reinforce people of my generation, some of whom have become cynical and some of whom become Democrats uh, and have are telling their kids, well, yeah, I used to be a revolutionary, but I'm not anymore, and let me tell you what we did wrong. So there's this constant effort at what we did wrong when, I'm sorry, we ended the war in Vietnam, we helped the women's liberation movement, we had the queer liberation movement, we passed the Civil Rights Act, we passed the Voting Rights Act. You try to match that. You try to match that, okay? So Can I say... Uh, of course. So we were talking in the car before about this uh, concept of recantation literature. And you know, I've been thinking about that a lot and thinking about my own childhood and you know, the things that children are exposed to that you know, have profound impacts when they're adults. And so you know, we were joking about recantation literature as being, uh, yeah, they're recounting and they're taking back what they've done and they're writing a book to institutionalize their recantation, right? right. Um, which I think is kind of funny. Um, but, you know, the other thing is that the important thing of what you're saying is that, you know, a lot of youth are getting these narratives from the adults in their lives, right? And I've been thinking about it a lot because, you know, I think about the Pan-African Film Festival when I was growing up, and that had a very big impact on my life, you know, going to the mall, and the entire mall was filled with African literature, was filled with revolutionary politics, you know, there were so many things in the mall at that, that time that you didn't pay attention to any of the stores in the mall. You know, they weren't making any money. Let's just get down to it, right? But the Pan-African Film Festival was making money, right? And so, you know, as an adult, I think a lot of folks need to reflect on what are you teaching the younger generation? Are you really teaching them that they should bow down their heads and then just join the system, right? The same system that is, you know, carried out oppression for the last 500,000 years, right? Um, that's just a reflection that I'm having that I'm still trying to figure out how, how do you address that in many ways. Well, I think that's great, and it's a great segue into uh, a specific thing we're doing. Uh, check this out. On Tuesday, February 12th, at the Pan-African Film Festival, which is in the Cinemark Theater at the... Uh, Crenshaw Mall, right across from Strategy and Soul, or we are more importantly, right across from the Crenshaw Mall and the Pan-African Film Festival, the Strategy Center will be sponsoring a film called Bus Riders Union, which some of you know about, and it's an amazing film. It's, it was written and um, uh, produced by and shot by the late and wonderful Haskell Wexler who is one of the great cinematographers of U.S. history, a pro-communist anti-imperialist, who uh, <laughs> looked out for the Strategy Center and the Bus Rise Union because he was looking for a revolutionary group in Los Angeles in the 1990s. And there weren't any in the classic sense, but the Strategy Center was trying to do revolutionary work, and the Bus Riders Union was an experiment. So if you're getting where I'm coming from, it's a wonderful film. It's about an hour and 20 minutes. It's a, it's a full feature-length documentary. Haskell spent three years of his life shooting it. Joanna Dep Demetrakis, 
uh, did the terrific editing of it. It's got a great soundtrack. So that's Tuesday, February 12th at 6 p.m. You can go on thestrategycenter.org and you can get more information if you're interested in joining us. Now, the reason why that's important is, first of all, that Haskell Wexler wanted to do a historical film about a group that was happening in the present in 1993, 4, 5, as I remember it. Uh, secondly, Haskell Wexler also worked on many of the pro-communist films, including The Wretched of the Earth. Not The Wretched of the Earth. Um, I'm sorry. That's I'll come back to it in a minute. Uh, uh, but the point is, is that, what is the point? That we want people to see that the revolutionaries have done some great work in this country. And to, Haskell was not recanting anything. He was 80 at the time. Uh, Ayuko Babu and uh, Asanto Olatunde are more or less my age or we're each other's age. And they are fully developed African and Pan-Africanist revolutionaries. So when you go to the Pan-African Film Festival, they're trying to bring revolutionary ideas from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s into the present. And we're very thrilled to be part of that. So this is all about the struggle over the historical record. And the Pan-African Film Festival is a great place to go. We're going to be going to many of the films. And next week, Channing and... Uh, Babu hopefully will be on Voices to discuss the Pan-African Film Festival. So now you're with Eric Mann, and I'm reading from my article, uh, All Hail the Revolutionary King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the Black Revolutionary Tradition. It was published in Counterpunch, counterpunch.org. You go on there and you just go click into the... Um, Index, as Anyel just did, Anyel Fields, the general manager. We found it under both All Hail, The Revolutionary King, or Eric Mann. You'll see about 20 articles, apparently, I've written in, in Counterpunch, that, maybe 15. And then also, it's in L.A. Progressive that ran on Monday. And as I said, it's going to be coming out on the Black Commentator this Thursday. So let me keep reading. In the case of Dr. King, the U.S. government, Democratic Party, and civil rights establishment distort King's life by putting him forth as a nonviolent, quote, accommodating dreamer, and yes, I do believe Barack Hussein Obama contributed to this mythology of King as the good civil rights leader, as opposed to Malcolm and the Black Panthers and the more revolutionaries. In the case of Dr. King, the U.S. government, the Democratic Party, and some in the civil rights establishment distort King's life by putting him forth as a nonviolent, accommodating dreamer. They attempt to use him as a counterforce against Malcolm X, Mao Zedong, Ho Chi Minh, Paul Robeson, W.B. Du Bois, Fidel Castro, Frederick Douglass, Fen Lu Hamer, and the great Third World revolutionaries throughout history. In truth, Dr. King was one of their colleagues and comrades. In turn, they are all great appreciators of his unique and courageous role in history. In that there's no such thing as history, says Eric Mann. 
But only the struggle over historical interpretation, I, along with many others, want to reinforce the historical view of Dr. King as a great leader in the black revolutionary tradition whose work should help our organizing today. And that's critical, to help our organizing today. So here's a few bullet points. Dr. King rejected the myths of U.S. society. He rejected its madmen packaging itself as the leader of the free world to tell it like it is. That the United States is, according to Dr. King, quote, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. Dr. King saw the Negro Revolution as part of a third world and world revolution. This is again quoting from Dr. King. I'm convinced that if we are to get to the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. For years, said Dr. King, I labored with the idea of reforming the existing institutions of the South. A little change here, a little change there. Now I feel quite differently. I think you've had to have a radical reconstruction of the entire society, a revolution of values. Dr. Claiborne Carson, director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford, in his King papers, related the following story. This is now King telling the story. Before leaving Ghana, King welcomed a visit from English clergyman and anti-colonial activist Michael Scott, during which the two men compared the freedom struggles in Africa and the United States. King reportedly expressed admiration for the bus boycott then taking place in Johannesburg, South Africa. Note the bus boycott also that the Bus Riders Union did. And remarked that there was no basic difference between colonialism and racial segregation. At both, at bottom, both segregation in America and colonialism in Africa were based on the same thing, white supremacy and contempt for life. So this is very important, that at the Strategy Center, we talk about blacks and Latinos as third world people inside the United States, as oppressed nationality people. We talk about the United States as a white settler state. We say there's apartheid in the United States. We say it's a racist, imperialist country. Uh, the things that we say, we did not invent. I'm a product of my teachers who taught me this, and I just simply am a good student, so I just repeat, not without thought, what I was taught. And you have to understand that during the 60s, the average person, certainly the average black person, but many white people, if you said, what do you think of this country? They say, it's racist, racist to the bone, built on slavery. Um, consider what they did to the Native Americans. They're killing people in Vietnam. It's a genocidal country. We've lost that way of talking, and I haven't, and Channing hasn't, and the strategy said it hasn't. We're encouraging young people to go beyond even you know, using many of the racial categories, which are critical, to move to more systemic categories in which the fight against racism is situated into the world struggle against U.S. imperialism, more clearly an anti-imperialist, anti-racist, black and Latino and indigenous liberation theory. Dr. King supported the black power movement and saw himself as a tendency within it. Now, this is Eric Mann's interpretation, but that's very important. Do you in any way think of Dr. King as a black power advocate? Do you think the system has ever portrayed him as a black power person? 
I think no. You would, I think you would say, no, no, Dr. King was for integration. He wanted to reach out to white people. Well, first of all, black power was willing to reach out to white people, so that's not even getting it right. Black power never said, don't reach out to white people. Black power said, reach out to white people from a position of black power. So he marched with Stokely Carmichael and Willie Ricks on the March Against Fear in Mississippi in June 1966. While initially taken aback by their cries of black power, he soon elaborated his own views as part of the black power continuum. I'll get to the word continuum in a minute. Quote from Dr. King. Now, there's a kind of concrete, real black power that I believe in. Certainly a black power means the amassing of political and economic power in order to gain our just and legitimate goals, then we all believe in that. I don't know, of all the things I've said here, this, this one really blows my mind a lot. One that King uses the black power. He keeps saying, if that's what you mean by black power. Well, of course, everybody's going to define it differently. But that's what I meant about he's on that continuum. He sees himself as part of the black power movement. So another thing that's, that I'll write, if I, because I'll probably rewrite this for the rest of my life, uh, you know, every year adding something else. Dr. King was very sympathetic to people to his left, which most people aren't. In other words, most people, they think, this is as far as I want to go. But King, like he was marching with people, and all of a sudden, James Meredith had been shot on the march. And then, so it was the march against fear that James Meredith led. And then people had to pick it up because he was shot. Uh, in Mississippi at the time. So obviously people were very angry and all of a sudden out of nowhere, but not completely out of nowhere, Willie Ricks and Stokely Karma start going, what are we fighting for? Black power, black power. And black power just took over instantly. Yeah, before social media, it just was viral in one second. <laughs> and King, so there's King. That's not his terminology. King doesn't use black power. He's sitting there standing there marching, but he doesn't disassociate himself. He doesn't move away from Willie Rex, and he goes, oh boy, history is moving in a more militant direction. Who am I, says Dr. King, to challenge these young people who have had it? James Meredith was just shot on a nonviolent march. Who am I to stand up against black power? So then King, brilliant that he is, says to himself, I better decide, because I'm going to be asked, are you for black power? And he's supposed to say, according to the white power structure, no, no, I am a very good man. Uh, but he says, yeah, if, if this is what you mean by black power, I'm part of it. So let me deal with the question of a continuum, what I mean by a continuum. We're not all the same. Are you a feminist? I'm a feminist. There are different kinds of feminists, but if you ask me, is that a word I agree with? Yes. Are you a communist? Absolutely. Are you an anti-imperialist? Absolutely. Now, within anti-imperialism, are you a black nationalist? Absolutely. Um, but within that, there's many different points of view within black nationalism, within feminism, within anti-imperialism. But the point was that during the 60s, we had this broad united front. We're all, imagine we're all marching down the street before we started attacking each other, by the way. <laughs> At one point, we were all marching forward. And people were saying different things under anti-imperialism. People were saying different things about black power. But we loved black power as a concept. And another thing that scared the hell out of white people, 
But guess what? A lot of the best white people endorsed black power as well, which you would not understand. So I'm going to do a little bit more, and then we'll go back to if Chani would like to keep going. Dr. King sided with the people of Vietnam, including the Vietnamese communists, against the U.S. invasion. In his Beyond Vietnam speech, written by and with his close comrade Vincent Harding, his anti-colonial support for the legitimacy of the Vietnamese communist cause was clear. Now, I ask you this. You've, uh, many of you have heard about the speech Beyond Vietnam. It was uh, delivered on April 4, 1967, exactly one year before Dr. Was King was killed on April 4, 1968. Vincent Harding wrote the, the primary draft, but obviously King worked with him very closely on the draft. How many of you read it? How many of you read Beyond Vietnam? I've read it, I was telling Channing, I've read it 20 times. I read it and read it and read it, and I go over every word to figure out what exactly, because they worked on every word. It's so perfectly written, beautifully written. I urge you to read it. And I think you're going to be mind-blown to say, wow, no, this doesn't sound like who I thought Dr. King was. So listen to King here and listen to Vincent Harding, who I was lucky enough to meet uh, before he died. Thanks to, again, Clay Carson, who invited me to the King Center for an important seminar. And I was part of it, and I met Dr. Harding there. So King says... The Vietnamese people proclaimed their own independence, this is King, in 1945 after a combined French and Japanese occupation and before the Communist Revolution in China. They were led by Ho Chi Minh, that is to say, parenthesis, a communist. Even though they quoted the American Declaration of Independence in their own document of freedom, we, ref they refused to we refused to recognize them, the United States. Instead, we decided to support France in its reconquest of a former colony. Our government felt then that the Vietnamese people were, quote, not ready for independence, and we again fell victim to the deadly Western arrogance that has poisoned the international atmosphere for so long. With that tragic decision, we rejected a revolutionary government seeking self-determination and a government that had been established not by China, for whom the Vietnamese have no great love, but by clearly indigenous forces that included some communists. For the peasants, this new government meant real land reform, one of the most important needs in their lives. For nine years following 1945, we denied the people of Vietnam the right of independence. For nine years, we vigorously supported the French in their abortive effort to recolonize Vietnam. I mean, that's just wonderful anti-imperialist history. I urge you to read Beyond Vietnam. And, uh, and Ricky, I think we're going to go to the phones around 10 of, okay, 818-985-5735. Uh, I urge the main people to call, or people that maybe had some history uh, of knowing Dr. King and also just have opinions on my article, which is fine. So we'll, I have about 15 minutes, but we're going to go to 818-985-5735. And since I took a break, let me read you something here. Uh, this is about a sustainer circle. Anya Fields and the, the administration here, including uh, Channing and I, we are trying to find ways that you would be willing to build in your giving to KPFK in a way 
that the station could have more sustained, that's what sustainers mean, sustained support, and we could cut down on the number of fund drives and have more continuous programming. But in order to do that, it's going to take a lot of work on your part, which means are you going to give before there's a fund to drive? So here's the thing. It says we have a new mantra at KPFK. It's called more content, less fund drives. Our goal is to shorten fund drives, give you more of the groundbreaking, incisive analysis and commentary, which first brought you to KPFK. Consider donating now at kpfk.org before KPFK Winter Drive begins. I believe it's going to begin on February 12th. Now, what's February 12th? The Pan-African Film Festival showing a bus rising. So you could give it voices from three to four, and then Channing will probably be already setting up there, and I'll be running over to the Pan-African Film Festival because I want to do the opening of the fun drive, and Anyel's going to come in and help. Better yet, under Support KPFK, this is if you go on kpfk.org, click on the KPFK Sustainer Circle, and become a monthly donor at $15, $25, $50, or even $100 per month. Again, find the details online at kpfk.org or call us at 818-985-2711. I repeat that one, 818-985-2711. And we'll take your information, and if you want to make a contribution over the phone, we'll take it as well. Okay, so now... Uh, I'm back. This is Eric Mann. I'm in studio with Channing Martinez. You're on Voices from the Frontlines. This is KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Uh, call us at 818-985-5735. At around, in about 10 minutes, I'll take some of your calls about your own thoughts about Dr. King's revolutionary legacy. Dr. King was deeply appreciative of the black communist traditions of W.E.B. Du Bois and Paul Robeson. He was well aware of the irony and significance that Dr. Du Bois died in Ghana, an exile from the United States and a communist, on the very day of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, wow. August 28, 1963. I had no idea. Isn't that amazing? That's crazy. And yeah. Roy Wilkins, who never liked Dr. King, I mean, I'm sorry, that's that was Freudian, uh, he, uh, who never liked Dr. Du Bois. Doc, uh, Dr. Du Bois was in the NAACP, but later become, he was the left wing of the NAACP, and he later became a communist. Um, Roy Wilkins announced it at the March on Washington. I'm sorry to say that Dr. Du Bois, who was living in Ghana, Die today, so that's of great significance. Uh, now, Dr. King observed, we kind of talk of Dr. Du Bois, and if you don't know who W.E.B. Du Bois is, please read The Souls of Black Folks, Black Reconstruction America. Uh, go online, just start with the Wikipedia, and, and he, I believe he died, he, he definitely died in his 90s, I think it was 93 when he died. One of the most prolific, brilliant scholars, organizers, activists, uh, pro-communist, and Black Reconstruction America is about 750 pages, but well worth reading. So now this is Dr. King. You get it? He's pro-communist. You get it? This is King speaking now. We cannot talk of Dr. Du Bois 
without recognizing that he was a radical all of his life. Some people would like to mute the fact that he was a genius who became a communist in his later years. Mm. It's worth noting, this is King speaking, that Abraham Lincoln warmly, warmly recognized the support of Karl Marx during the Civil War and corresponded with him freely. Can you imagine Abraham Lincoln and Karl Marx being pen pals? In contemporary life, the English-speaking world has no difficulty with the fact that Sean O'Casey was a literary giant of the 20th century and a communist, or that Pablo Neruda is generally considered the grading living poet, though he also served in the Chilean Senate as a communist. Our rational, obsessive anti-communism has led us into too many quagmires to be retained as it was a model, as if it was a model of scientific thinking. Now, King did not merely mention the great contributions of communists from Du Bois, Casey, Neruda, and Ho Chi Minh. He situated himself in that tradition, not as a member, but clearly as a friend and admirer. So it's the same thing I'm trying to explain about a continuum. You're either pro-communist or you're anti-communist. And that's okay if you're anti-communist. It's not okay, but it's a point of view. But Dr. King was very pro-communist. So you can imagine when the, this is Eric Mann speaking now. So imagine the system is saying, Dr. King, are you a communist? Dr. King, are you a communist? As if that was the worst thing. And that whole era of us was being asked, are you a black nationalist? Are you Today they ask, are you with Herbert Farrakhan? Are you, a, you know, with the Nation of Islam? Are you a terrorist? Are you, you know, these constant asking questions, and often people are saying, yeah, yeah, I am. I mean, I am. Uh, Dr. King says, no, I'm not a communist. But just to be clear, Dr. Du Bois was a genius and a communist. So this is not simply an effort to distance himself from anti-communism. This is Dr. King being very warmly and complexly pro-communist in his reading. And it's, it's very beautiful. I had never seen this before I, until the research I did for this article. I hadn't either. Um, maybe I'm going to end here and then, Chan, I want you to respond to this. Give out the number, 818-985-5735. I'm happy to read for the next 12 minutes. All is good. But if you'd like to call and talk to us about Dr. King and the black revolutionary tradition, uh, in about seven minutes, I will stop reading and listen to you. 818-985-5735. This is Eric Mann, Channing Martinez, in studio with Voices from the Frontlines. I'm going to end with this either way, and then you and I will just talk. This is important. Now, first of all, Dr. King was very nonviolent. This is very important. I am no way trying to indicate that he had any ambivalence about this. Nonviolence was central to his philosophy. But listen to this. King's nonviolence was aggressive and militant, reflected a nonviolent direct action. See, that they don't say Dr. King was for nonviolent direct action because direct action is the noun and nonviolent is the adjective. So, of course, Dr. King had his own unique views inside the civil rights movement and the black united front. His views on nonviolence were real and deeply held. He also saw nonviolence as a tactic to prevent a massive violent backlash from racist whites. 
King tried to position his demonstrations in ways to get the largest amount of white liberal and international support and to pressure the National Democratic Party that was tied at the hip to the racist Dixiecrats. His belief in nonviolence deeply held, but was also tied to the theory and practice of militant, aggressive, nonviolent direct action. When I worked with CORE, this is Eric Mann speaking, and allied with SNCC in 1964-65, they were known as the Black Militants, and yet both organizations saw themselves, I wrote at the time, as nonviolent. But that did not prevent, and in fact encouraged black people to march into the registrar of elections in southern cities and refuse to leave. Black students to occupy lunch counters and refusing to leave. Black and white people marching to the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, confronting an army of armed police and white racists, or black people in the North marching into elected officials' offices, occupying them, yelling, chanting, singing, and confronting. Everyone we challenged in the white power structure saw militant, nonviolent direct action as a big threat and retaliated accordingly. No one at the time praised Dr. King for his moderation. They saw angry black people and saw Dr. King as a threat, which he certainly was, and saw his nonviolence and urgency of now as a political force to be crushed, not co-opted. So here is the point, you know, uh, when I joined CORE, we were Congress of Racial Equality. Uh, they had organized the, the concept of a stall in which they were going to, this is in the North, take cars and have almost no gas in them, drive them onto the freeway and walk away. Now, you could say, that's violent. No, it's nonviolent direct action. I'm not doing anything. I'm just leaving a car parked. Or we would block... Uh, you know, we would stop a company from functioning. We would go into the Trailways bus company and start yelling and screaming and saying, take the rail, yeah, I hate to say that, not the trail, or go to Greyhound, not Trailways. Uh, they hated us. And if you, if you can't imagine a group mainly of angry black people yelling at the top of their lungs uh, <laughs> and the white people going, they're not saying that's nonviolent. They're going to get these people out of here. So what people don't understand is the civil rights movement, they keep calling it the nonviolent movement, but they don't understand it was direct action movement. And some believed in violent direct action. Here's one more point, and then I'll throw it to Channing. You know, Dr. Uh, Howard Zinn, who was a known pacifist, said the destruction of property is nonviolent. He said violence is only violence against another human being. If you go into the trailways bus company and throw yourself in front of their bus, if you tear off the steering wheel because you don't want a white racist to drive it, if you break the windows, this is deep. Dr. King, I'm not saying that's what Dr. King believed, but my point is Howard Zinn, who was a religious, uh, not religious, a meticulous pacifist, he made a very interesting concept that Nonviolence means we will not physically attack another person. It doesn't mean we will not attack property. It doesn't mean that we will not try to mess up the system. Channing Martinez, and if you're interested in talking to me, 818. Oh, we have some calls. I'm sorry. Uh, Don in Culver City and Channing, you can respond as well, okay? Hey, right. Don, thank you for calling. 
Thanks, Eric and uh, Channing. Thanks for having me on your show. Uh, and I just want to say, Eric, long-time listener, first time calling you, but uh, I wanted to make one comment and a question, if I may. Sure. Uh, the the, the uh, comment is that uh, as a professional actor, uh, an artist overall, uh, an educator, uh, one of my day jobs in L.A. has been, uh, uh, was actually working the education system here for about 10 years. Four or five of those years I was working as a sub-teacher. Hmm. I was very subversive, and by that I mean I was the, the guy who, for example, in one day just because I could, created a lesson actually about the whitewashing of particular heroes, such as King. Uh, I even included Bob Marley, John Lennon, and even Che Guevara. Uh, for all the reasons that you said, pretty much uh, teaching these kids who'd never even heard of a Malcolm X or never even heard of a Paul Robeson, that they, in addition to these other people, have all been basically uh, whitewashed, where they don't understand what they truly stood for. So I just commend what you're doing. I'm doing the same thing if I, if, when I can through my art. Um, That's great. But the, the question, thank you, um, and, but the question actually has to do with uh, Black Panthers and, the black, uh, and black, uh, Lives Matter. Um, in terms of, when I think of the Black Panthers, I think of the lessons in nutrition and community. I think of the free breakfast program. I think of uh, the different networks they had uh, around the world. They were going global, and I think of how they were teaching people to know their rights within the law. When I think of Black Lives Matter, all I think of are the angry marching and the yelling in front of the police precincts, and uh, I wonder why they have not use the Black Panthers as a model, because the way I look at it, you're effective when they start coming after you. Let me respond to that, Don. First of all, thank you for the thoughtfulness, and thank you for your own history and, and what you've been doing. Uh, I'm a big admirer of Black Lives Matter. I see them, I mean, first of all, just as I'm using the word continuum uh, as a concept, I think Black Lives Matter, me not speaking for them, but speaking as a friend of theirs, it's a continuum of many different political thoughts inside the black liberation movement. In fact, BLM, Black Lives Matter, is very uh, cleverly, intelligently also BLM, Black Liberation Movement. Mm -hmm. They're very aware, and they want to be a multi-tendency movement. So the first thing is, you wouldn't say Black Lives Matter does this or doesn't do this, but they're building counter-institutions. They're active in the national domestic workers, they're active in the struggle against the prisons and jails. They're doing poetry, read Patrice Carr's book. I think they're doing, uh, in my opinion, they're in the great, first of all, thank you for the positive things you said about the Black Panther Party, which I agree with. But I think, uh, including those people that came out of the Strategy Center, if I can say, we all believe in what we call counter-institutions not alternate institutions, meaning we're not trying to get out of the system. We're trying to build our own institutions to take on the system, but to give people uh, a different place to reside. And I, I, am, uh, I urge you to check out Black Lives Matter LA and Melina Abdullah and others and uh, check out their work and make your own decision. But thank you for a very thoughtful call. Uh, can I get uh, John? Please. Hey, shalom, everybody. I like the show. I like what you're talking about. And I appreciate the fact that you brought up what Ting actually said and about the voice because many people don't even understand that. I am from a certain sect. And the sect that I'm from, we already know that we've been targeted. And uh, we're not worried about that. 
It's our belief that it's, since we are doing something, that's why we've been talking. And I mean, I try to do understand what the other caller was saying, and I appreciate what he was saying. But and but when it comes to Black Lives Matter, yes, they do their thing, but they also endanger our sect, which we prefer to remain silent and not be looked at, so that we can continue to do what we do in silence and in equitable secrecy to bring our people along because we see the institutions for what they are. And rather than build an institution to match theirs, we would rather build an institution uh, to totally avert theirs and not even be seen until it's too late. The best way to win any war, even political, is by surprise. All right, well, brother, let me, uh, first of all, thank you. I mean it. Thank you for calling voices from the front lines. I think the point is, as the host, uh, the, the value I get in having callers like this is I don't have to comment on every, like this brother has a theory, and his theory is that you don't go out in, in a very public manner because we live in a dictatorship. And if you go out in a, in a public manner, you're in danger of being suppressed. Uh, I don't have to agree with everything he said to start with the premise that I agree with you, that there's danger. And I think everybody I know in the movement, certainly in the black movement, in the civil rights movement, is very aware. I mean, Dr. King was killed. Malcolm was killed. Uh, everybody, you know, Medgar Evers was killed. Mickey Schwerner, you know, we had deaths all the time at the time as part of the work. So I just think the thing I like about Voices from the Frontlines Oh, no, is, is thanks for calling. That's the point. I don't have to comment. But let me say one thing is important. Uh, Black Lives Matter will speak for itself. I don't want to, you know, this show is about Dr. King. I think it's important to stay there because I just continue to say uh, they're one of the great breakthroughs of this period in history. I'm, I'm a unmitigated fan and, a, and appreciator of them. And I don't, I'm asking our listeners if we're having a show about Dr. King to not call in to make statements about another organization, which puts me in a difficult position, but not that difficult because I'm going to defend Black Lives Matter, but I don't speak for them, so I don't want to get caught in this contradiction. But I'm not afraid of the contradiction. The contradiction is I'll support them in every way I can, okay? But I would urge you to stay on the subject of Dr. King. Shaka, I'm going to listen to you and hope uh, we... Ricky, how much time we got... Okay. Two, two minutes. Okay, Shaka. I'm, I'm coming in kind of late, so I'm, I hope I'm not going too tangential. But I was a member of SNCC as it morphed from civil rights into black power. I was right. a young man, and I was coming in. I initially was more interested in civil rights than any type of black nationalism. But because of a lot of the oppression and brutality that I saw, it didn't take me long to feel that an armed response had, a, had an appropriate uh, uh, message at certain points. We actually changed our name from Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee to Student National Coordinating That's correct. And we said we're basically nonviolent to those who are nonviolent to us. But if you sick a dog on us and, you know, you try to shoot us or kill us or, you know, attack our women, that we're not having it. So one of the things I'd like to say just briefly, there's many people of color, Gandhi, Cesar Chavez, Martin Luther King, when are we going to take a white philosopher, and there's plenty of them that are nonviolent, 
when are we going to push them to that height where they have a boulevard in every ghetto, they have a national holiday? We want our white leaders to be violent with bombs, bullets, Ebola, boogers, whatever. But we take people of color and we applaud them for being nonviolent. It's not fair. Dr. King knew that because he loved Malcolm. And exactly he right. Malcolm on most things. You know, they were both religious men. They were both family men. And ultimately, they knew they would probably both be martyred for saying what they said. Hey, Sean, it's very beautiful. I mean, again, I want to say this is that uh, I don't know if you knew Phil Hutchins at the time was a good friend of mine. And he was he was the last chair of SNCC. And Shaka, thank you for calling. The point he was just saying is that many of the people who went through the nonviolent movement decided they believed in armed self-defense. And that was the transition to the Panthers. That was the transition that SNCC even took nonviolent out of its name. But here's my conclusion. Number one, please read my article. Uh, Go on counterpunch.org. Go on thestrategycenter.org. Go join us on... Tuesday, February 12th at the Pan-African Film Festival at 6 p.m. And what a wonderful show and what a wonderful set of callers. Everyone thoughtful, everyone smart, everyone respectful. You just can't beat that. Thank you, Dr. King. Hey, Ricky, if we could find happy birthday to Dr. King by uh, Stevie Wonder. See if you can pull a miracle off real fast. Channing, any last thoughts? Uh, none that will get away in a minute. Uh, that, but you know, they do threaten black people with nonviolence, um, and there's a whole larger conversation to have about that. Um, but yeah, tune into Voices from the Front Lines next week. We'll be on with the Pan African Film Festival, hopefully. Take care of yourselves. Bye, everybody. Think about Dr. King and appreciate the greatness of his life. Perfectly, then to have a world party on the day you came.